0: Hello and welcome to rising with the tide this episode is part of a mini series of episodes from our older podcast the lancaster university extinction rebellion podcast hello and welcome to episode 8 of the LUXR podcast today with us we have joanna haig who's a formerly emeritus professor of atmospheric physics at imperial college london was co-director of the grantham institute of climate change and environment a leading think tank in the uk uh, as well as UN IPCC lead author on AR3 and an all-star scientist overall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Joanna, hi, how are you?
1: Hi, fine, thanks, how are you?
0: Good, good. Uh, I think I can speak for both Ellie, who's here with me co-hosting, uh, and I that when hi. I say that we absolutely appreciate you coming on here. It's uh, it's it's pretty much an honor. Um, <laughs> oh, no, no.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation.
0: <laughs> so um, let's get straight into it. Um, You've worked a lot in institutions, uh, quite high profile institutions that have had um, direct and measured, I think, impacts on discussions around climate change, around policy making. What can you tell us about your experience in, for example, let's start with the <laughs> Grantham Institute.
1: Well, I might take a few steps back from that because I'm, mm-hmm. I started my career as a physicist um, as an atmospheric physicist, very narrow approach to the physics of, of the atmosphere and climate um, but as i, I mean i 've always been interested in the environment and then I began to see um, much more of the actual real importance of working on it not, not just the scientific interest but also the importance of humans and the world and, and everything on it in yeah. trying to uh, do something about climate change so um, I worked on, on many aspects of atmospheric physics, and then at uh, one point in my career, just over 10 years ago, I, I became um, head of the physics department at Imperial, which mm. uh, was a great honour but a huge load. Um, it's an admin job, of course, and um, <laughs> that really um, meant that some of my um, atmospheric and climate work had to sort of take a bit of a back seat for five yeah. years. And then when I uh, got to the end of that five year stint, um, I was invited to take over as co-director of the Grantham Institute, as you said, and that was really amazing, Um, completely different. So as head of the physics department, it's it's a huge physics department, hundreds and hundreds of undergraduates and hundreds of staff and all the rest of it. Um, It's great, fantastic stuff that's going on, but it's just a huge management task. Um, With the Grantham Institute, it's quite different. It's a sort of core, a small core of, of permanent staff and fingers out all over the place to anybody in the college and outside that wants to um, work on or contribute to studies of climate change and its mitigation and, and adaptation and all those sorts of things. So it's very much more a stimulating job rather than anything else.
0: I think both of us, Ellie and I, have have seen a lot of work come out from the Grantham Institute. I mean, it's one of those think tanks that that just always pops up whenever we're we're looking for for research. Um, I I was wondering specifically geared I guess towards the Grantham Institute what kind of effect do you feel your research has had on sort of real-world policy and and have you had contact with government or with uh, local regional national do you feel like the research from Grantham has do you see it having had a like a really like translated into a real-world impact
1: Um, I I hope so I think so I mean the the Grantham Institute was set up um, with generous funding from the Grantham Foundation for the Environment, specifically to do that. I mean, that was mm. that was what it was meant to do. So uh, that the Jeremy Grantham didn't want us to do just pure research. I mean, he understands the need for scientific research, which is why he funded the institute. But what he wanted absolutely was um, how that could be translated into into action and uh, an effect on the world and on policy. So um, I think perhaps the jewel in the crown of the Grantham Institute is its um, policy and communications group which again is very small but is very active in engagement with people. Part of that is um, making the science um, into a form that people can try and understand and we um, say we, (laughs) we used to, I I did, they do (laughs) produce um, briefing papers on on topics that can be on on the engineering side or on the impact side or on the science side and write them in a way that we hope will be understandable by people who are, you know, obviously intelligent and interested, but not necessarily experts in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, we think, I mean, we know, of course, how many people have downloaded those things and read them. Um, we also know um, that we're effective in the sense that we've had a lot of engagement with government. So, for example, um, Department of Business Enterprise—I get its name wrong—base. Um, which is in charge of climate change nowadays has held um, its sort of staff away days in the Grantham Institute so that it can you know make use of our resources and talk to us and we've um, hosted meetings for people from government we've been invited to talk to them about different aspects so I think yes we are quite engaged
0: is there has there been a change in the in your career um, I know you weren't you know co-directing the Grantham Institute for for your whole career, yeah. obviously, but um, do you feel like do you, do you feel like and have you heard at least as well that there's been a, a sort of shift in the in the recent past of, of how we we react and and listen to climate advice from think tanks such as the Grantham Institute, or do you think that there is still it's still at the same place, or I guess my question is is are we listening right and have we been listening right? And how can we even improve?
1: Um, I think there's been, um, over the years, there's been a shift. I should say it's quite interesting. The start when people started working on carbon dioxide and climate change, uh, well, this is not the start of the work, but the start of the modelling or the mod- modern work was in the 1970s. And the first predictions of the effects of CO2 were in terms of um, uh, doubling our CO2 would give you a two degree surface temperature warming, with more of it at the polls. So the the predictions were absolutely amazingly, you know, similar to what we see nowadays in the predictions. So the science has moved on a lot in details of understanding what's going on, but the core of it was already there. But what has changed a lot is people wanting to know about it. So at at first it it was just seen as a sort of niche science. um, And perhaps, you know, of course, the United Nations began to get interested and began to. Realise that something should need to be done, but I think in terms of the general population, it really people might have heard of the greenhouse effect, but that that was yeah. about it
0: yeah that 's one of the reasons why we started this podcast was to to try and inform our fellow students about the specific causes and effects
1: yes, good um, but nowadays there 's a huge appetite um, for information and knowledge about climate change, what it means what it does, what it might do in the future, and how people can react to it and that 's not just from Um, academics it's very much from from the whole community so um, for example we've done a lot of work with um, with businesses um, at at the Grantham Institute um, with obviously insurance companies want to know what's going to happen in the future but there's a big interest from the finance side you know how to finance projects that are going to help with climate change action businesses want to know about uh what's the impact on their supply chains you know if you're a food Mm -hmm. retailer or something they all understand that they need to change and they want to know what's going to happen so that they can do it so this has been a huge difference over these few years it's not just an academic thing it's a real practical important thing for everybody Mm -hmm. um at large and of course there's all sorts of other um not just um Um, commercial businesses but also like local um, authorities want to know um, what they need to do about climate change and how they can make life better for everybody to adapt to climate change and Mm -hmm. mitigate the worst effects of it so there's a lot of engagement with local authorities and that's grown hugely um, in the last few years as well Um, then there's quite an interest now on um, things like uh, climate change and health so um, before the COVID thing um the whole the whole public health issue and uh, first most obvious thing of course is um air quality and when you're burning fossil fuels you, you're producing a load of gunk that's giving people all sorts of lung and respiratory diseases but there's all sorts of other aspects of um the positive sides of action on climate change which are good for your health too in fact i know one of the medics um at imperial says there's nothing you can do for climate change and not also good for your health <laughs> so you know you do active transport you go walking and cycling instead of um mm-hmm. going on a in a car or um you um, amend your diet to produce more, to eat more Vegetables and, and less red meat. Now, all these things are good for your health. So, there's a sort of co-benefits of action.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you, you mentioned the UN, and as we said in our intro, you did work with the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, even being a lead author on AR3. So that's um, um, was it? Ah, it's uh, too long um,
1: ago to remember what the date is. Sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I think it's 2001. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Two thousand one. Sorry. Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So, I one of my questions, um, in relation to that was, um, what was your experience like working within the UN? Like, I personally, you know, I'm international relations graduate. The UN is one of the places that I'd like to work in potentially, especially UNEP. Um. But one of the things that is, is kind of scary is it feels very bureaucratic. It feels like it might be a sort of waste of energy for not much uh, results did you Did you feel like this when you were working for um,
1: i didn 't actually, and I have to say i 'm I'm not um, immune to that sort of um, considerations i 've done quite a few um, European community projects, and while we 're very grateful to the European community for the funding they give to the science, that was so bureaucratic it was like. Mm-hmm bangingly, you had to produce six months of you and obviously you have to justify that, that they've given you the money that's absolutely reasonable yeah. but the amount of paperwork and forms and everything is just driving you around the bend now with the ipcc it's it's not like that there's an awful lot of work um and paperwork but it all seems to be justified in a sense so that there's um these groups of um, authors who are brought together to write about particular topics mm-hmm. And then, of course, they review each other's um, writings. Um, And then there's a big sort of group overseeing that that all the topics that fit together are in the right places in the chapters. Then there's a rewrite. And then it goes out to what are called um, friendly reviewers. And the friendly reviewers, well, they're people that that we identify as people, we respect their opinions, but they're not going to be, Mm. we know they're not going to be hostile, at least. They're going to be positively (laughs) critical
0: right okay Constructive. so it yeah. comes
1: back and then you do a second draft and then that goes out to the world in general to be anybody can be a reviewer uh, of that
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then all that comes back and this is this is i suppose you might call this bureaucratic but every, every single review that comes in has to have a response so they right. write a, a, wow. a critic and you have to give a response you can't just say go away or well, you can say go away but you have to say why it's rubbish mm-hmm. whatever <laughs> this comment is um, so that's a huge amount of work, not only for the authors, obviously, but also for the people who are trying to collate all this information and keep it all um, on track. So yeah. you can see that as bureaucratic, but what it means is it's the most um, well-reviewed piece of work yeah. ever. I mean, it's certainly better reviewed than anything else I've ever been involved in. Yeah. And yeah. so you can feel that um, when the IPCC reports come out, they really are state-of-the-art in Mm -hmm. the science and also you can't have anything at least in working group one that's the science one i'm not sure about the others um you can't refer to anything that's not in the published peer-reviewed literature so you can't just write a report at your institute and then refer to that as something that to be relied on that's not the way so it's 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 in a sense i suppose that's sort of rather conservative because it's always going to be on the safe end it means it's much it's much more difficult for the um people who'd like to find fault with it to find fault with it
0: yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's, that sounds like a solid way to work through things. Um, what has changed since 2001? I mean, if, if you, I just want you to kind of go back sort of mentally to 2001 and to, to when you were doing this lead author work um, and, you know, considering all the sort of factors and, and the science and data. Um, is there anything you can tell us that has sort of changed in the way that you perceive climate change since then or the effects and the causes?
1: Um Well, there's all sorts of new science obviously that's come in since then, not the basics of the greenhouse effect mm-hmm. um, but things like um the role of cloud and um, the feedbacks in in the um, climate system and then of course, a lot more stuff on regional impacts because you could only really look at with using the climate models, you could only look at regional impacts when you've got decent models with decent horizontal resolution and, and back then they weren't really up to it and nowadays they're just about getting there so we can have much better um informed idea of what climate change is going to do on a regional basis so that's that's different as well and now of course there's a lot more emphasis on looking at uh, whilst this ties in with the regional um but on on the impacts on people's lives and livelihoods and agriculture and business and all these sorts of things as well as the pure what you might call pure scientific physical science aspects
0: right
1: i was um so you've worked on
2: these reports that have been produced for governments and other organisations to, you know, help them. Well, a establish what is happening in terms of climate change and what will go wrong. Um, but I was, I was wondering, sort of, you said also there's more interest from businesses, local authorities, and stuff um, in what they can do to prepare for or, you know, reduce their contribution to climate change. And I was wondering, in particular, you know, the governments, particularly the UK government you know your thoughts on what they are doing are they doing enough are they doing the right thing oh, um <laughs> um oh,
1: well um well how far back do we go um so when mrs may was prime minister the last thing she did as her sort of legacy was commit the uk to um meeting the two degree target by um net zero by 2050 and the fact that she did that was superb the fact that she actually put that into law for the country that they, they've got to try and do it um so that's the good side <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it's the target um the less impressive side is is what's happening which is as far as i can tell very little that sounds that sounds rude but um you know, if the, the government has been completely distracted. Firstly by Brexit, mm-hmm. and now of course by COVID. Um, and there's been talk about climate change, but very, very little, uh, uh, you know, done to actually make things happen. Now, mm-hmm. today on the news, I don't know if you've seen this. Dominic Cummings,
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, is sponsoring is some
1: big carbon sequestration project. Well, I don't know any of the details. But uh, you know, well, at least it's not pro-fossil. Plus, it is pro-fossil fuel, actually. Perhaps it's enabling the fossil fuel companies to carry on. Yeah. we will see. I don't know. Any, I don't know anything about it. But um, at least it puts climate change on the agenda somehow or other.
0: Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I've been reading a lot about offsetting uh, since we had our, our episode with um, a Sussex uh, researcher, uh, Andrea Brock, who taught us a lot about how harmful actually offsetting can be in a lot can of cases. Be, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. As well as it can, like can blur the line as to what we ought to do because it gives us this oh, false yes. impression that we have a, a maximum limit we can up. Uh, and I've seen that Boris Johnson's plans, and I mean, and I guess Theresa May before him, the plans that offset, especially with uh, forests uh, planting, seems to be very monocultured, kind of um, like emphasised towards monocultures and towards not really taking a, a good appro- a good look at the the sort of bigger environmental context of like where you're putting this tree what kind of tree that is it and how yes, it's going yes. to affect with uh, other things yeah it's not
1: something i understand a lot about but i do sort of get the picture that it's it's as much to do with the forest management as to do with actually mm-hmm. planting trees yeah um a little plug for the grant institute has just published one of its great uh, briefing papers on um uh, forestry and and uh, that sort of thing
0: yeah, yeah. um What's, your, what's been your most sort of your, your proudest moment of the I, I wonder in your in your very sort of varied and, and an impressive career What is there has there been like a super <laughs> high point
1: well I suppose from a personal scientific perspective being elected mm-hmm. a fellow of the Royal Society you know you can't get much better than that yeah from yeah. a personal badge sort of thing <laughs> I wouldn't say that was particularly yeah. great achievement.
0: Well yeah, the there world were, in general. I, I did forget uh, <laughs> I didn't want to make your intro, you know, two or three minutes long, but I no, could have no. by by saying that you're a fellow of the world no, Society, no, no. Don't worry, but, but you did CBE ask. CBE so as well. Uh, CBE no, yeah, well, honours. No, no. I I
1: just but you did ask. So that's that's, that's my answer from a personal <laughs> yeah, level. Um, yeah. Um what have I contributed? Um well I've done bits and pieces during my career to try and support other people doing stuff. And I'm one of the things I'm um, uh, quite happy about is how the Grantham Institute progressed while I was co-director. And that's not entirely, of course, at all entirely down to me. Um, it's me talking to other people and they're doing the work or they're having ideas or whatever. But I think the Grantham Institute has grown enormously and um, I'm really proud of the way that happened.
2: With just Sorry, just while we're on the Grantham Institute, I don't know how much this would go into the podcast um but just hypothetically speaking if there were a young scientist starting out in their career what kind of thing advice would you give them if they wanted to go into that kind of work at the Grantham
1: Institute or um similar climate related so the Grantham Institute as I said is a very small hub of activity and most of the people who are working in climate and environment at Imperial are in departments so they have academic um tracks that they're on so what i would say to people is um do what feels right and not 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 right in a moral sense right to you what feels what feels right don't do things that make you feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and because you may do something that you think you should do or your parents or whatever tell you you should do or you think might earn you a lot of money if that's a consideration Um, what you need to do is something that you feel in your gut is what suits you. And I I I, um, I, I don't know how else to put that, really. So if you, you know, you personally, you're doing a physics degree. Presumably you quite liked physics, but I hope you still do. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, and then you, you might think I'll do a physics degree now and then I can do all the sort of green options. And then when my career develops, I've got a very strong um, technical basis on which I can you know build a, a green career and the same would go in in many other um, fields of science as well and obvious things like biological sciences you can you know do sort of effects on plants and um, engineering you can do lots of solutions so i would say go with the academic subject that you think is you like the most and then try and adapt your career from there mm-hmm. yes. well, thank you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I saw from your interview with Carbon Brief um, that oh yeah you had, you had said that you wish that you had been more assertive in your in your career. Uh, if yes. I'm remembering it right, I don't want to misquote yeah. you. but um, more yeah. assertive and and that you dealt with a lot of harassment as well. Um, I just to follow on from the sort of proudest moment, I guess. What's been the the hardest? The, the biggest hardship that you've gone through as a scientist as a as a person in the field just
1: <laughs> hardship <laughs> i don't know i've been so lucky i suppose one of the worst moments was actually to do with the ipcc and not not their fault and really? um, we were in um in tanzania mm-hmm. at one of the meetings um and i was due to fly back for my daughter's first day at secondary school Um this is a big deal you know um and um the planes were cancelled and i couldn't do anything about it i know this is a silly little personal thing no
3: no
1: but i sat there and i just cried and i couldn't even talk to my daughter on the phone and i'm sure she didn't give a damn (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. and so um that's a small personal thing and then when you're in that sort of state i'm sorry about the striking clock um (laughs) You sort of, then you question, oh, did I make the right decisions to come on the meeting? Perhaps I shouldn't have come on the meeting. Perhaps I shouldn't have done the IPCC. Perhaps I shouldn't have a career. Perhaps I should be a better mother. And then you go through this whole thing of <laughs> yeah. deconstructing your whole life as to what you've done and whether it was the right thing to do or not. Um, but there's the assertiveness thing, I think, is, is, is true. I have, I've been a bit of a wimp, really, <laughs> sitting back and listening to other people. <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah. Um. I. Th- I think you raise a good point about sort of work-life balance. That it seems like a lot of people in academia, I mean, and outside of it as well, um, a lot of people seem to have a uh, trouble with with work-life balance. I mean, it seems like we're more productive than ever, but we spend more time than ever at work as well.
1: Yes. That's right. Yeah. And it's not. It's not healthy. Mm.
0: Yeah. No. No. For sure. I think we we can start to kind of get into the more scientific uh part of the discussion um because we've laid out quite well your your career and and your achievements um i've heard this claim so this is something that we've talked about before in our little introduction call but i've heard this claim i'm sure a lot of people have as well that climate change is natural that it has happened in the past and that it will continue to happen and you know the, the, this idea that's kind of out of our hands, that's not um, that's not caused by human actions. Is that something that you've you've seen in your work and your research?
1: Yes, indeed. Um, so, of course, it's true that climate has changed in the past oh. on many timescales, from from millions of years to hundreds of thousands of years um, uh, to sort of decadal changes, and of course, it, it will naturally continue to change in the future um but of course people who want to deny that humans are influencing climate want to say that the recent what we can now call global warming over the last say 50 to 100 years is Mm -hmm. is natural and um the uh the reason that's often cited for that is um the sun so it's all due to changes in the sun
0: and you're a specialist on the sun
1: So my research career was, uh, at least since about the mid 1980s, has been very much on how changes in the sun affect the climate. That's a really interesting physics problem, actually, for all (laughs) sorts of reasons that I won't bore you with. Um, But there's all sorts of interesting ways in which solar radiation and solar geometry can influence the climate in quite um, subtle ways. So I I was getting to be quite an expert on that. when of course, I, I was making a name for myself in that era, and I started to receive messages from people who obviously thought that because I was working on how the sun influences climate, I was therefore um, somebody who believed that the sun caused climate change, which wasn't mm. the case at all. I was just interested in the physics. So I was on various sort of denier sort of web links and things, which is really interesting to see um, how they were going on. I think after a while, they realized it wasn't so sympathetic. <laughs> Chopped
3: me off, but um,
1: but that really engaged me in the whole um, idea of people wanting, you know, climate change to be this or to be this, and very much me wanting to do the physics and uh, try and understand uh, what was going on. So I did a lot of work on, mainly my work was on how the sun influences the climate, but I've also done um, a fair amount on greenhouse gases and um, radiative forcing of climate change too, which is obviously all relevant to recent climate change.
0: Can you explain for the listeners what, um, what that means in, in sort of more like layman's terms, the, the sort of fields? So when
1: we, th- when we think about the things that are influencing the climate, um, there, there are um, several that, that sort of pop out immediately. So I mentioned the sun. Obviously, if the sun suddenly got much more hot or put out more radiation, mm-hmm. the earth would get more hot. So that's a very simple idea. So you've got to look at that effect. Um, It can also be affected by um, volcanoes. If you have a big volcanic eruption, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: um, it will spew stuff up into the atmosphere. And if it gets in the stratosphere, it can stay there for several years. And it cools the climate by reflecting sunshine to space. Mm -hmm. And you can see the temperature blips after big volcanic eruptions in the temperature records. There are also changes in climate associated with internal variability and heat moving around the climate system and in particular going into the oceans and out again so that's related to sort of el nino effects and and that sort of decadal scale or several year scale climate change and then there are changes um, which actually goes back to the solar thing which is due on, on much longer time scales on um, changes in the uh, earth sun geometry so i was talking about the sun putting out more radiation having an effect but also the radiation reaching the earth depends on how far away from the sun the Earth is also there tilting and all the rest of it, yeah. So, on, on sort of 100,000 year timescales and longer, the significant um cause of climate change, um, and um, indeed, um, that that's essentially the driver of the ice ages, so changes in the earth's right. orbit around the sun, and um. they will will cause what's called radiative forcing, so changes in the radiation that's hitting the Earth. If you get more radiation hitting the Earth, that's called a positive radiation forcing, and that will cause warming and vice versa. So you can see that the orbital changes will affect the radiative forcing. And if you look at that, um, the most most effective one is on hundreds of thousands of year timescales is changes in the ellipticity of the orbit. So the Earth's... um, orbit around the sun is an ellipse, it's not a circle. The Mm -hmm. ellipticity actually changes on timescales of hundreds of thousands of years. And um, that introduces um, a change in the global temperature, which is um, well understood, but it's it's very small. Mm -hmm. Now, if we look at the ice ages, they happened um, every sort of 200,000 years but not in a sort of smooth harmonic way that you might expect in response to these sort of orbital things I've been talking about. And indeed the temperature changes, which are sort of five to seven degrees between a, an ice age and an interglacial period is much larger than you can f- find from those sort of or directly from those, those orbital changes. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is that when the sun of the orbit gives the earth a little bit of a positive kick, gets a little bit warmer, then what happens is you get um, carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases released from various stores in the oceans, um, in the ice, um, and they come into the atmosphere and there are more greenhouse gases. That means more warming. That means more release. And the whole thing goes very, very sharply. So if you look at those temperature changes, they, it goes up quite fast. I'll come back to what's fast and what isn't fast. <laughs> And then the orbital thing changes and goes back the other way. So, slight cooling and a slight, um, all the, the gases are sort of then absorbed, the extra gases are then absorbed back into the stores. And very slowly, you go back to where you were before. So, you are 200,000 year time scale, you get a sort of almost like a sawtooth, sharp up and then slowly back down again. And associated with that, you've got these greenhouse gases going up and down. You've got temperature going up and down, the greenhouse gases going up and down just about in sync. So people have seen those, those. Those you get records of those out of ice cores and all sorts of things. And um people have seen those and uh climate change deniers say, look, it's all natural, we've seen it all before. CO2's gone up and down, temperature's gone up and down, mm. what are you not going on about? You know, it's all natural. Um, so what needs to be explained in that context <laughs> is that um, the initial kick to this um, cycle is given by this orbital change, which I've just described. It's a small kick due to changes in the orbit, but anything that gives it a kick will start it off. And um, what could start it off could um, be many other things than um, the solar thing. It could be um, human greenhouse gases. Right. So while that cycle was there in the past, perfectly naturally, what's happening now is not that at all. So in the past, we've seen these cycles on 200,000-year timescales of temperature and CO2 and other greenhouse gases, indeed methane, too, going um, up and down. And uh, people have used that as um, an excuse or reason to say, look, it's all natural. We've seen CO2 going up and down, temperature going up and down in the past. It's all natural, and it's natural now, and what are you not going on about? Unfortunately, what's happening now is not... Natural at all. Mm-hmm. What we've got happening now is um, the warming is not coming from changes in the Earth's orbit, but it's coming from human produced greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. which then can produce this extra warming through the feedbacks. I should point out also, though, that the warming between the um, ice over from the ice age to the interglacial, um, even though it looks sharp on those saw- sawtooth grass, mm-hmm. is about 10 times slower. Right. than the warming in terms of degrees per year that's happened over the last 100 years it's so um, it, it's not a it's not a good analogy at all right right yeah
0: so it's it's not just a question of scale it's also a question of of speed then
1: yes yeah. that's right yeah
0: hmm. i wonder if um just to, obviously we can't really dive into the specific papers that that you've written um it because you know, both time reasons and also uh, I wouldn't understand any of it. <laughs> Ellie <In> might, <laughs> but, so sure. uh, but uh, one of the questions that I had coming into this was Is there a quantifiable um, effect that the the sun has uh, that, that changes in the sun that we've seen recently have had on climate? Because this is something that. When I get into discussions with people, uh, sometimes, you know, friends, colleagues, whatever, about climate change, some of them tell me that, you know, the solar radiation levels change and that a lot of it can be explained. Like you said, it's a question of speed and scale. But is there some sort of effects, though, at the moment that you've seen at least?
1: So if you look on... um Long time scales, say um, several centuries or longer, mm-hmm. there is a very small modulation in global mean surface temperature due to the output of the sun, which is varying on those time scales but it's it's a few tenths of a degree back mm-hmm. to one degree most right, it's, okay. um, yeah. it's very small. but um, what we have seen more recently um, is an understanding of slightly more regional effects on the earth. so this is what I got interested in research-wise. Um, when we say that the sun's more active, it's putting out more energy, but the total amount of energy it's putting out is only like a tenth of a percent, so it's quite small. Right. But in terms of the solar spectrum... It's much more complicated and interesting. So, the sun's has a spectrum which peaks in the visible, which of course is the radiation that we see. Mm-hmm. But it's also got radiation in the infrared, and it's also got radiation in the ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. And what happens when when the total levels going up and down by a tenth of a percent um, in the ultraviolet it's going up by a lot more. It's going up by one percent at say um, two hundred nanometers, and as you get to shorter wavelengths, the fractional changes are much much larger. So by the time you get to about a hundred nanometers. I think it's doubling between solar min and solar max. That's large changes. Mm -hmm. And those short wavelength radiations get absorbed in the upper atmosphere. So there's very clear signals of um, solar variability in the upper atmosphere measured and understood. Um, And the question then comes as to um, if those large changes in the upper atmosphere can actually somehow or other permeate downwards. And there's a lot of interesting work done on that. And I did some work on um, changes in um, ozone and heating of the stratosphere. Um, and that can affect the weather near the ground. And in particular, it can affect the, um, very slightly the positions of the storm tracks and the winds blowing around the, at the poles. Hmm. But this, this, really? is, this is quite a small effect but it's it's measured and statistically robust
0: yeah how, how do you keep track of all these uh all these effects i mean this is you know this is the whole earth as a system that we're talking about but within yes. Uh, yes. A, a within a galaxy which itself has effects on the earth uh, i really yes. i'm always amazed at how we can keep track of all <laughs> these variables and the, their effects on each other i mean not perfectly i know there's invariabilities and, and there's like um, you know some issues sometimes with models and such, but that's just the way science goes. I guess is just perfecting models through error. Um, but I don't know. I just I, I I'm always amazed at how there's so many factors and we're able to kind of pinpoint things.
1: Yes, and that's something that we all need to bear in mind when we're working on on our chosen area. And I think there's there's different ways of going about it. You can you can identify a particular process that you want to investigate, and you can go into in, into real detail i mean i was talking about the solar spectrum and i can look at atmospheric chemistry and i know all that sort of very very detailed stuff and that i think that's quite important to understand the processes but it's not the whole picture as you say so you can use models of um, more or less complexity more or less resolution in terms of spatial resolution uh, and in terms of vertical resolution Um, and you can you have to compromise, um, on those things, which you know, do you want more processes? Do you want more spatial resolution? What, what do you want to actually investigate? Mm-hmm. And there's no right away, a wrong way of doing it. Um, it's important that all these things need to be done and mm-hmm. you get a picture of the, from different angles. Now, nowadays there's, um, there's a big activity in what's called earth system models and they, um, are meant to have everything in you know which is um, ambitious and they're not doing too badly i mean they have some biological processes and you know vegetation dieback, and they have chemistry and they have ocean circulation and all the rest of it but um you're never going to be able to do everything because you you just haven't got the number of degrees of freedom that the real earth has so it's always going to be an approximation
0: there's also an issue with that i think uh, which we've discussed on the podcast before is this idea of of um, abstracting the earth as a very, very infinitely complex system, abstracting it into data, um, which sometimes does not, the study of which does not reflect the actual effects of the actual system that you've abstracted um, in a a sense.
1: Well, you have to measure, you have to measure the right things. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, and you have to measure the right things with sufficient, um, Precision accuracy um, and also again, it's, it's a spatial resolution and with the atmosphere you've got vertical resolution You know you're measuring something down through the atmosphere mm-hmm. um, So you can answer some questions, but you won't be able to answer all of them And then of course there's the the infamous unknown unknowns you are not yeah. asking the question because you don't know the question to ask mm-hmm. um, You have to accept that's always going to be the case um, Yeah, I had a question yesterday
2: Briefly, in our, our chat, we sort of mentioned geoengineering. I was wondering if you could maybe oh, yes. give a sort of an explanation, firstly for anyone listening, what that is, and then sort of give us your thoughts.
1: Right, I have to try and be an, an um, a disengaged scientist because <laughs> I have quite strong personal views right, on geoengineering. Right, yeah. But let's let's try let's try and sit it out. Geoengineering is the um, willful um, if effect affecting willfully the state of the earth somehow to compensate for the harm that we've done in terms of greenhouse gas global warming so as humans we've warmed the climate and done all these other things associated with it through introducing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere Now geoengineering offers um, solutions to that problem um, which essentially come into two categories There's one category which you could call um which which we call we we wrote a report about this from the royal society a few years ago now perhaps 10 years ago um carbon data um you know carbon dioxide removal so um that would be um different methods of trying to get the co2 back out of the atmosphere that you've put in now there are various sort of more sensible ways of doing that one is planting trees of course but we've already had a mention that There are ways of doing that that may be better than others. Mm -hmm. There's some more technical um, uh, carbon dioxide removals. Um, For example, you have an artificial tree which is there and it's sort of got chemicals that absorb the carbon dioxide. And then you take the the branches or the leaves of the tree whatever, and you you store them somewhere to get them out of the way. The large-scale commercial uh, carbon removal techniques, which I think is what Dominic Cummings is probably supporting today, but I don't know because I haven't read it, are these um, schemes where you, um, you fit um, carbon dioxide removal technologies onto, um, for example, the, um, the, the chimneys from power stations. And so you suck the CO2 out of the uh, waste gases, mm-hmm. you, um, you liquefy it or solidify it, and then you shove it somewhere where it's never going to come out again, yeah. which is, is plausibly is the the uh, place where they've extracted the oil in the first place, you know, so there's holes in the ground and you shove it in there. That's been demonstrated. The Norwegians have actually got working uh, schemes that actually um, do this. So mm-hmm. it does work, um, but adopting it as a sort of a sort of a, a, a grand solution so that mm-hmm. we can carry on happily as we were burning fossil fuels and just tuck it all up the atmosphere, I think is, is fanciful yeah but at least it seems to be um, trying to correct the mistakes that we've made in a sense we put the co2 in there let's try and get it out again so that's sort of philosophically perhaps a sensible thing to do that compares with the other method of geoengineering which is called um, solar radiation management Mm -hmm. so the idea with this is that we've warmed the planet by putting greenhouse gases up there so we need to cool it. How do we cool it? Oh, we reflect sunshine back to space. Um, so there's various more or less plausible ways that are proposed to do this. Um, there's some things like big mirrors in space. Now, we may laugh and think that's... Yeah, yeah. You can laugh. I, I laugh, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there are people in, in the US who are actually developing these things, oh and they're God. not big mirrors. They're actually, they're actually collections of lots and lots of tiny reflectors mm-hmm. Um, that are put up boosted up into the l1 point which is the equal gravity point between the earth and the sun so they sort of sit up there as long as they can be maintained but you have to keep putting more and more of them up and then you reflect the sunshine back to space the one that's received more attention because it um uh it was sort of supported by paul Crutzen, the nobel prize winning atmospheric chemist Mm -hmm. very very clever person was to um Put particles into the stratosphere. So he was suggesting um, sulfate particles, mm-hmm. and these would act exactly like those volcanoes I mentioned earlier, which are reflecting the sunshine to space, so cooling. Um, you know, to correct mm-hmm. for the warming. Um, there's problems with sulfates, of course, because they have chemical things as well. But let's not go there.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but all these, all these solar radiation management techniques, as far as I can see, are subject to the same <laughs> criticism. Um, they are not correcting. The problem.
0: They are not. So yeah. what
1: you've got when when you have this is you've got an atmosphere that's high greenhouse gas and low sun. That is not the same as the atmosphere that we started off with. Mm-hmm. And already it's very clear from um, climate models and things that um, if you do that, you don't you you affect the hydrological cycles and things that affect global circulation. So you mm-hmm. may have got the same global average surface temperature. That's probably achievable. Um, but it's not the same surface climate in any way. Yeah. People argue um, that it's better than nothing. The main proponent of solar radiation management is, um, oh God, I've forgotten his name, um, at um, Harvard, David Keith at Harvard. Right. Um, well, he argues try that- try reach
0: out to him, see if uh, he wants to come on the you, podcast. Yeah,
1: oh, he's, he's, very, he's, very, he's, he's very great, I did a podcast with him once, we really? had a great time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Arguing. Well, maybe we can invite um, both of
0: you on again then. <laughs>
1: Um, his argument which is sort of plausible except for one reason i'll go into in a minute is that you can sort of smooth off the worst of the effects so at the moment we're going like this and the idea is that you you do some of this uh, correction so that it's not going quite so fast to the global warming that you're trying to avoid but it'll get there in the end if you if you don't do other things but then you can start doing all these other techniques that you need to do the mitigation electric cars and all the rest of it so that you can get get there more comfortably mm-hmm. okay so um that's that's the um that's the argument but <laughs> the main philosophical objection to solar radiation management, or indeed to any sort of geoengineering um is that it's a sort of a moral hazard it offers you the opportunity to say oh it's okay we can carry on doing what we've done already because we can correct it we're in a Mm -hmm. position of power we can just stop it again um and this gives people the idea that it's not a problem that they need to solve Mm -hmm. um and in fact it gives a sort of i mean i I love i love engineers you know (laughs) some of my best friends are engineers but it gives the the big engineers a chance to control what's going on it's a promethean Um,
0: view of nature i mean it's
1: exactly exactly that yeah so I'm sorry. I told you I go into a rant when No, I no, no, no. F- no th- so thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's it's uh, it's insightful, and this is something we've talked about again on the on the podcast. Is um, I think this hints at a, a greater issue in the climate change discussions and debates, which is uh, carbon reductionism. So we uh, we tend to reduce the whole issue of climate change as an issue of greenhouse gas and carbon, when really. There are more to it than just that. Of course, it's a huge issue, but there are more to it than that. There's biodiversity loss. I mean, if I remember right, yeah. France, for example, has lost 60% of its uh, birds in the past 30 years. Um, that's not going to be solved by some mirrors in space. Um, there's huge human issues in terms of mining, um, how how mining has not been regulated at all. Um, for example, we, we learned a few weeks ago that you know 23 percent of children in the southern region of congo mine cobalt um yeah. and the the sort of reports of of everything from whippings uh beatings attempted drownings rapes um are are enormous and and it's, i think it the the discussion around around carbon has been reducing the sort of amalgam of issues to it instead of talking about hey, why do we have such an extractive economy? Why are we so obsessed with taking from the earth to create rather than trying to find a way to take, create, and put back, in a sense?
1: Yes, so a sort of sustainable way of going Yeah.
0: On. So my, my issue yeah. with a lot of the discussions I've had around climate change is that a lot of people seem to think you know tech can save us, but... For me, it, there's a clear issue where tech cannot save us from our own Promethean kind of ways of thinking.
1: No, tech can help, but it's not going to um, solve those, especially those problems of inequity that you just described. Mm-hmm. Certainly.
0: Yeah. Is a. I know we're we're uh, we don't want to keep you on too too long, but um, another question I had was sort of more towards the the. Practicality of putting things into policy, um, because that's something that personally I'm, I'm very interested in. I wonder if did you feel listened to uh, as a as a scientist, as a co-director of Grantham, as a lead author? Did you feel like people in political in in, in positions of political power th- did you feel listened to by them?
1: Um. Well, obviously, some some more than others. I mean, there are some uh, really amazing um, outfits out there. Um, uh, the Green Alliance and the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit that are, are directly linked into parliamentarians, and 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 through them you can do quite a lot of mm-hmm. influencing. Or those 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 are the sort of parliamentarians that want to know, so they're actually quite they're quite easy to influence in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, others um, clearly. Don't want to know, but I think all we can do is just try and get the information out there, put it into the hands of people who might use it um, as best we can. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I wonder if um, I wonder if you have any sort of tips or or advice as to how to get there, because I guess as a scientist, you, <laughs> especially someone who's seen over, overseen the the more sort of general uh, aspects of the research, I, you know, it seems like there are pathways. Um, I mean every every sort of uh, was it called the, the UN gap uh, reports things like that the the specials report 1.5 and, and the ARS as well they all reference pathways uh, to so this means how do we how do we get from where we are today to for example 1.5 degrees Celsius right and two degrees and 1.8 degrees and all these things um, do you have do you have faith in 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 humanity or, or even in, in the country or in people to to get to those places that are necessary
1: uh depends how tired i'm feeling actually <laughs> <laughs> how positive <laughs> i'm feeling um but there are some really really amazing people working to try and get things uh, the person um I've got. I've forgotten his name. Paul, something or other. He's he's the lead civil servant who's in charge of the British involvement in um, the COP uh, Mm -hmm. the UN meeting in Glasgow. And um, listening to him, you think, my goodness, if he was running the country, we'd be fine, (laughs) (laughs) because he understood all the issues. He knew what had to be done. He could see that adaptation was a real issue. Mm He's trying to get people to talk to each other. He's trying to get countries to talk to each other. But, of mm. course, he's not the prime minister. He can only provide a structure and advice. Mm. Um, so if people like that are there, and if they're actually being listened to, um, then we're fine. But I'm afraid, um, well, not to get too political about it, but the current no, government no, is, sure. is is completely... Um, hopeless yeah. we don't have any sponsors <laughs> or anything
0: so you can get us political it's doing
1: it's doing very little on the climate change and we mm. did have boris johnson saying build back greener the other day which i suppose is better than not mentioning it at all <laughs> yeah. um but you have no faith in 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 them at all actually yeah the, the the only redeeming thing which is as i said already is that they've got in law they've got to try and get mm-hmm. to net zero by 2050 now whether they'll Actually, do it is another question. Yeah, I mean
0: the UK is off its uh, five-year plan uh, targets. Yes, it is. And, uh, yes. It's, yes. It feels like a lot of the work that was quite easy to do to to reduce emissions and such has already been done. I mean, you know, the shift away from coal, for example, is 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 almost that's, that's good. complete yeah. now. I think in 2018, yeah. I remember it was yeah. about four percent of primary.
1: Don't so need some big investment in things like. Um, replacing gas heating and that sort of things across the country um which would have a big effect
0: yeah yeah when we were looking yesterday um ellie and i a a carbon brief uh another carbon briefing uh about primary energy output i think it was um or energy use it showed from 1970 to to 2018 i think it was and it, it showed that our share in coal has gone down from something like almost 50% to 4%, which is amazing. That's yes. great. But yeah. <laughs> the offside to of that is that it has been replaced largely by gas. Um, yes. Oil has gone down as well, I think, but again, been replaced by gas. And a lot of that has also been replaced by things like biofuels, which um, as we know, Ellie and I, we've, we've done now, uh, you know, we've had a couple of episodes on the podcast and we've, we've, Read some of the research on biofuels and they they really aren't that that environmentally friendly and yet they count no, as sure. renewable so well just because they are
2: renewable because you can regrow a yes. tree but it doesn't mean that it's actually uh, well a sustainable yeah
0: yeah and and as ellie knows we've talked to alexander dunlap and andrea brock about the the ways that in which uh, for example solar panels and and wind turbines actually have so sort of very like measurable impacts on the environment but just not in terms of emissions uh, in their active life but rather in mining for example mining for cobalt um, mining for steel uh, coal to make the steel all these sort of things so so for me there's there's a big divide in where in the language that we use um, when we talk about renewable energies you know we talk about Um, biofuels sometimes nuclear comes into it um but is that enough is that do you think that in your experiences as uh, as a researcher do you think that switching to these will be enough will it be enough to take us away from our extractive habits
1: well i think um it's all comes down to the bottom line doesn't it and now you can see we can see that um despite the some negative aspects of it um onshore and offshore wind is now cheaper than um so certainly than nuclear uh and uh, it's getting cheaper and cheaper by the day so people will just want or the governments will want to use it rather than the more harmful um you know greenhouse gas emitting technologies mm-hmm. um you can from a sort of environmental perspective go down um you know we don't need to grow the economy we've all got to live simpler and um share lives which I mean I can sort of appreciate you know I'm not particularly into a glamorous existence but it's not an easy sell no no, so if you want if you want to um, bring the country and the people with you telling them that building a wind turbine will save them money Mm -hmm. is going to go a lot further than telling them you've got to not have what you used to have because you know etc it's (laughs) it's um it won't work yeah Yeah. therein lies the problem (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. Well,
0: to to not finish on the on such a on the negative note i guess um is there do you have any any final words or tips or uh, or advice or sort of things that you'd like to say to you know to environmental activists out there to physics students who are trying to change the world or or you know to all these people who, who see the problems of the planet and and ache yeah. to fix them
1: well, I don't know if I've got any specific things to say, but I would. You asked me earlier about what's what's changed mm-hmm. over the years that I've been working in the area, and um, one thing I didn't mention was the involvement of young people, sort of en masse, mm-hmm. as being interested. There's always been some that have been interested, but there haven't been the big youth movements, like Extinction Rebellion, um, that that I think is doing such an amazing job in bringing it up the agenda, to the to the point that. Um, you, they, XR, are not seen as sort of, perhaps they are by some people, but not in the same way as they used to as sort of left-wing, hairy, no-good wastrels, um, but actually have um, a serious point to make and are being taken seriously. And so all I can say to the people that you're working with is keep it up. I'm good for you. Please. <laughs> thank you.
0: Well, no, is, a, yeah. Thank you. On that note, Joanna Haig, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an honour, pleasure. And uh, we hope to see you again at some point. Um, Wish you the best with all your endeavors in retirement.
1: Thank you very much. And I wish you the best in all your important work as well. Thanks very much. Thank Thank you. you.